I'm going to start today uh, with uh, this, a, a little study on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and because we're on our continuing study of Christophanes, uh, and uh, you know, just as a general overview, you know that they were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and a fourth personage appeared in the furnace, and I'm, we'll, we'll get into it later. But uh, I believe that fourth personage was Jesus Christ. Uh, and that is one of the more powerful Christophanies in Scripture. But yesterday, I finished uh, in church, uh, in my church, a seven-week study. I finished it yesterday on spiritual warfare, on spiritual warfare. And the seventh session was on the role of the Holy Spirit, understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in preparing you and defending you and keeping you uh, in line with the will of God uh, as you experience spiritual warfare. And you will all experience spiritual warfare. It is part of living in this world. Um, and I pray to God for a, for a strong finish uh, for that series. Uh, and I came upon this writing uh, that I've decided to read to you today uh, because I think it applies to all of you as well not just to my church members, but to you. It applies to people who are committed to walking with God, to walking with Christ, uh, to recognize that there are going to be ups and downs. And yet this is a personal commitment uh, that I would like each of you to make, and I call it the fellowship committed to doing whatever it takes. I am a part of the fellowship committed to doing whatever it takes. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. I am out of the comfort zone. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. I am finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right. First, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast. My goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of adversity. Negotiate at the table of the enemy. 
ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or burn up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me because I have dedicated my life to being a part of the fellowship committed to doing whatever it takes. Amen? That has to be the credo to live our lives. That's what it's about. Yes, you're called. Yes, God has given you the Holy Spirit. And that's how you need to make the statement to the world, this is who I am. I am a part of the fellowship of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Uh, and so what a great introduction uh, to understanding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, and as you understand Daniel chapter 3, you know that the Babylonians uh, conquered Israel. This is all around the year 600 B.C. Uh, and they came in and they took the brightest and the best back to Babylon. Uh, that included the three Jewish boys. It also included Daniel. Uh, and so they're brought back to, to uh, Babylon, uh, and the attempt is to inculcate them in the culture. But they have been, you know, raised as devout Jews. And so they understand what it means to be a Jew and what it means to worship Jehovah. And so at some point, Nebuchadnezzar erects this 90-foot-tall statue and declares that uh, everyone must bow to the statue when the music plays. Uh, and they, of course, refuse to bow. Uh, and so now their lives are in jeopardy. Uh, and so uh, I want you to turn, beginning with verse 16. I've given you the pretext there. Now look at verse 16 as we're going to read a few verses here as their lives come into direct conflict with Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. This is where... Nebuchadnezzar told them, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These are guys who are basically committed to whatever it takes. There it is. All right, they're not stepping back. They're not afraid. They believe in faith that God will save them. But if God decides not to save them, they bow to his will. What a tremendous statement of faith this is. It really it touches my heart. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And this is what happens when you confront evil. He was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. you got to love this guy. The furnace was, you know, wasn't hot enough. All right? Blast it now. 
uh, and, and you see how evil is. Uh, seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the flazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them and threw them in. Can you imagine? The very people that took them in and bound them died. They didn't go into the furnace. They were there just in, in, with the contemporaneous heat, and that killed them. Uh, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then, verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, Governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Can you imagine? Uh, because they walked with Jesus Christ. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Well, <laughs> he will eventually come to faith. Now, he's not at faith here yet because he's cutting people up, all right, and, and making pieces out of them, all right? It's not a really good move for evangelism, I would say. But, but he will eventually come to faith. He'll spend seven years wandering the forest as, a, as an animal. But he will come to faith eventually. And I believe that when we get to heaven, he's going to be up there. We're going to see him. But the point of this is this is a Christophany. This is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is not a mere angel. Uh, I mean, I think even the language of the pagan, one appears to be the son of, of, of gods, is, I think, insightful because clearly there was some incredible vision of the fourth man. I mean, after all, we know that Jesus is veritable light, uh, and I'm sure that's what it was. And so you see here, God preparing the Jewish people that there will be a Savior. There will be a Savior coming down the line. Uh, and we see this uh, in this powerful manifestation here uh, in this way. And, and you see how God honors, how God honors those people who give of their lives uh, and, and give of their faith to demonstrate that this is who they are. What a tremendous picture of faith this is. You know, this is one of the early Sunday school lessons that I'm sure all of you have had. 
and, and you recognize how powerful it is, uh, even more so now as an adult. This is, in my opinion, a powerful Christophany. This is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament uh, and preparing the way uh, for what would come uh, 600 years later. Now, I want to continue with where we've been going with, with this uh, Bible study, which is Jesus in the Old Testament, all the manifestations of Christ in the Old Testament. And you know they appear by way of Christophanies, the actual appearance of a physical Lord, uh, or typology, being a type representative of Christ, or a symbol of Christ. Uh, but, the, but every page of the Old Testament, every page, really, uh, is filled with Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So the exodus, the exodus of the Jewish people uh, from Egypt is probably the most important salvation event in the whole Old Testament. This is a 40-year uh, period of time as they come out of Egypt. Uh, God rescues his people from the bondage of the Egyptians. Uh, he does it by a miraculous way. Uh, it is a redemptive event. Now, this is important for you to understand. It is a redemptive event uh, at the very beginning of Israel's history. And it is different from all other events in Scripture. This is a redemptive event. God is demonstrating to the people of, of Israel what redemption and salvation means. Now, the delivery of Israel uh, out of Egypt uh, into the promised land points to the work of Christ in salvation because the people of Israel were in bondage uh, to suffering, to pain, uh, and to sin. And the world is in bondage to sin and suffering and pain. And just as God took them out of that situation, Christ takes the world out of the situation where, where we are in. Uh, and he redeems us and saves us. Uh, and so what it means also is that it's the representation of judgment, judgment on the world uh, and the wicked uh, for salvation. Uh, and this becomes important for people to understand. You know, I said yesterday uh, something that I think merits repeating today, and that is this. You know, uh, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences. You understand? You choose your sin. You willfully walk into issues. All right? And you will choose the way you sin. But you never can choose the consequences. And trust me, there are great consequences. And so there are many redemptive events uh, in the ex Exodus story. Redemptive events, which really foreshadow the coming of Christ. Uh, and this is important. Uh, Israel's bondage. Israel's bondage. That's a foreshadowing of, of the world's bondage to sin. Uh, Egypt's cruel treatment of Israel. Uh, we see that in spiritual warfare even today. Uh, how Satan comes and, and really decimates uh, the world. Uh, the cries for deliverance. You know, the world is crying for deliverance. They don't recognize that they need Jesus. They're crying for deliverance in some ways. They may think uh, there's a, a human deliverer. Well, there's no human deliverer. It's only Christ. And the calling of Moses by God uh, as the delivering agent 
uh, and the represent, representative of, of who would bring the plagues. Moses being the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. You understand, God is laying this all out for the Jewish people. He wants them to be prepared. 1,400 years down the line, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to come, and you need to recall all these redemptive events as I've given them to you, because he will be the ultimate redeemer. Now, the Exodus, the Exodus uh, means four essential things for Israel. Uh, it means a new life. They would have a new life. Their life would not be the way it was before, where they were in the brick pits. Uh, they would now have a new liberty. They would have freedom, uh, which they never experienced before. They would now have a new fellowship. The new fellowship meaning a fellowship with God. God would be their partner. He would walk with them. And a new assurance. Meaning what? Meaning as long as we walk with God, we will be assured that he will be with us. Nothing will befall us that is not within his will. Now, all of that has a counterpart, you see, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the exodus under Moses is indeed a type of, of Christ for which Jesus has come to save us. It is all a foreshadowing. The Exodus exposes, and this is what the Exodus exposes. It exposes the falseness of idolatry. You see, Egypt was, was fully involved in idolatry. They had hundreds of gods. And yet with all that, they failed completely. You cannot be sold in idolatry. And every once in a while, the Jewish people in their 40-year sojourn would meander into idolatry, and every time God would cut it off, would cut it off. Uh, and, and you would see the impotence, the impotence of false gods. They have no power. They have no authority. And I would say this, that the, the counterpart today is this. Uh, there are so many people in the culture today who are worshiping false gods. Now, let's understand something. I'm not talking about some little statue in your bedroom. You understand? I'm talking about uh, worshiping prosperity, uh, worshiping recreation, uh, wor worshiping money. You understand? Worshiping friends, all right? Worshiping even family, where we get to the point where we put all these various elements above God. You understand? I mean, one of the things that annoys me uh, and I keep my mouth shut about it, is when people have family coming into Naples, uh, and, and it's a Sunday, and they don't come to church. Well, I wanted to have pancakes with my son. Well, here's what I say, have pancakes after church. I mean, you can't spend an hour with God and then go home. What kind of, what kind of example are you to your family? You understand? All of you here, we pray. We pray for your children and your grandchildren. And then what kind of example do you give? You don't show up. All right? This is idolatry. Make no mistake about it. And God wants you to be disabused of that. Uh, and then you see the futility of rebelling against God and resisting his will. There was Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Who, who would think that he would be bowed? Uh, before this desert wanderer, all right? Who would think that this Jew would be able to bring Pharaoh to his knees, but the Jew had the power of Jehovah behind him? You understand? And so that's what happened. You cannot resist the will of God. 
Let me say that to you in your lives. Don't ever, ever find yourself resisting God in any way. Uh, and understanding as we, as we drill down on this that Egypt is a picture of the world. This is the world, all right? Uh, and that's what Egypt was in every way. It belonged to the world apart from God. Uh, and there can be no success in any world apart from God. Uh, and so shortly after being uh, uh, shortly after being delivered from Egypt, the people began grumbling in the wilderness, asking why God had liberated them if he is just going to let them starve. Now, you've got to love the Jewish people. Oh, Moses, my heart goes out to you. Can you imagine what it is like to uh, lead three million Jews? Three million Jews out in the wilderness. Oy vey. The, the best way of picturing it, I would say, is imagine taking three million Manhattanites and trying to bring them across the Hudson River. All right? Believe me, I grew up. I was in court. I know what it takes. It's not a pretty picture. They're brilliant people. Uh, they're very self-assured. And even though they'd spent four years uh, in Egypt being drilled down, uh, they still had very strong personalities. And so here they go. They've been pulled out. All right? They've been brought through the Red Sea. But guess what? Now you're going to let us starve. What are you doing to us? And God then tells Moses that he will rain bread from heaven. Now think about this. I'm going to rain bread every day from heaven. And so what happens? Every day God sends this bread that falls down from heaven just enough so that they have to go out each day and collect it. And if they try to collect more than one day, it spoils. All right? And so again, it's a picture of Christ, meaning that your sustenance and your future is tied to him. He will be there for you on a daily basis. He'll lift you up on a daily basis as you become dependent on him and assured on him. That's what Jesus does. That's what the manna was. Now, the manna, you see, signified the presence of, of the Lord with the people of Israel uh, and his shepherding care. Uh, and it's, it, it typifies Christ. Again, this is a typology. It typifies Christ because like Christ, it is all the people needed. That would be the principal source of their food for the 40 years that they would be wandering the desert. Uh, and it's practically the sole nourishment uh, that they would have as they entered Canaan. Uh, and so what, what we know is that Christ, you see, is the food of the soul during the pilgrimage through the wilderness of the world until it reaches the true Canaan, which is heaven. Christ is your spiritual lifeblood. Christ is your food. Uh, and so likewise, the world is perishing, perishing from its lack uh, of spiritual nourishment. And God heard it, and God gave his one and only son for the world uh, to spiritually nurture them. Christ came into the world uh, not just to teach it uh, and redeem it, but to be its spiritual food and sustenance. That's what Jesus is. He is our spiritual food. He feeds us with the bread of life every day of your life. He gives of his own self 
for our spiritual nourishment uh, and supports our soul. Nothing else in this world can compare to what Christ does for our souls. Uh, in later times, in later times when the Jews uh, would remind Jesus, and I love this, they would remind Jesus that Moses had provided manna in the wilderness uh, and ask, what signs do you have? Can you imagine? What signs do you have uh, that you are the Lord? Uh, and Jesus replies with a stunning revelation about himself and manna. Look at John 6, uh, verse 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That is the bread of God. It is the body of Christ. This is why when we celebrate communion, we break the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ, just what Jesus said. Uh, and so understand this. Jesus was the personification of manna. That was for the Jewish people to understand. This is a temporary situation, but there will be a spiritual compliment coming uh, in 1,400 years who will be Christ, uh, the Son of God. Uh, and so this becomes important for you to understand it. Jesus in the Old Testament, full of the Old Testament. Now let's talk about water from the rock again. We've talked about it a few times. Uh, not long after the manna issue, God provide, where God has provided manna, the people test Moses again by quarreling with Moses and demanding he give them water to drink. Moses, at God's command, strikes the rock and water flows from it. Why don't we take a look at that passage, all right? Because it's so powerful. Look at Exodus uh, 17, if you would. Exodus 17. Beginning with verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And I think that's important. We don't ever want to put the Lord to the test. All right? We don't want to put Lord to the test. We have to rely in faith that he will take care of us. Moses replied, why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Ugly, huh? Ugly. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And yes, the answer is he's there. And so you see this, uh, where, where the rock provides water. Uh, and so this is, this is, a, this is again, uh, a typology of Christ. All right? 
the typology of, life, of Christ. Now, we know that when he was crucified, that when the sword struck his side, water poured out of his side. Uh, and so not only is he the bread of life in every way uh, and, and sustains us, but you see here, he even gave them physical water. Uh, he attended to their needs. Now, uh, as time goes on and they spend 40 years in the desert, there will be another time when they need water again. Uh, and they will again annoy Moses. Uh, and he's, he's, he's really besides himself. He had had a bad week. His sister died. Can you imagine? On top of everything else. Uh, and so uh, he's told this time by God to speak to the rock. To speak to the rock. Now, he loses his mind. You understand? And it's understandable. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he takes his staff and he strikes the rock in anger. And God honored it. The water poured out. But Moses would be punished for that. Moses would not be allowed to go into the promised land because he had disobeyed God. Now, why was that act so poignant? It's so poignant because Christ can only be crucified once. You understand? This is a veritable uh, typology of what will take place in 1,400 years. Christ will be crucified, and we will get life forever from Christ. But after he's crucified, now you pray to him. Now you speak to him. You don't strike him again. He has been struck once and for all. And, and he paid a, a serious price for that. Uh, and so it's, it's understood. It's understand. We understand exactly how he appears in the uh, Old Testament. Look at John 4, verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. And Paul says, the rock was Christ. Okay, when you see me say these things, I don't want you to think this comes out of my uh, imagination. It does not. Uh, God has provided this really by his Holy Spirit. Take a look if you want further proof on that. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All right? This is Paul speaking on this, and we need to understand this. Beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is important because what, they, what he's doing here is he's effectively showing the fact uh, of the portent of the new covenant. All right, he's showing here the baptism. They all passed through the sea. That was effectively a baptism. Uh, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. The spiritual food is Christ. All right, they're eating this. And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Amen? That rock was Christ. Make no mistake about it. That rock was Christ, confirming the fact that Jesus Christ was their protector and provider in every way, uh, a very present time uh, for the Jewish people, preparing them. God wanted them to become the evangelists of the world. You understand? 
This was the role that Israel had. When Jesus came on the stage, well, God expected and wanted Israel to rise up, defend him, and become the proponents of Christianity. And as Jesus walks out to stage left, the Jews walk out on stage right. Very sad. Very sad. You can imagine what it had to be like for Christ to experience this. Well, let's talk about the tabernacle, because this is also uh, effectively a foreshadowing of Christ, the very tabernacle itself. And so at the same time that God gives Moses the law, he also gives Moses directions uh, for building the tabernacle, which would be a portable church, effectively, uh, where they would worship God, uh, a place where God will abide. Uh, And the tabernacle, you see, becomes a prefiguring uh, of the holy temple in heaven. And so God walked with Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, and, and so too the patriarchs. But the tabernacle was a place where the Jewish people knew God was present there. God would be present in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and so they needed to understand that, that God was always present. He's there every day, 24 hours a day. And so the the tabernacle assured the Israelites of the veritable presence of God. Uh, Now, like the more permanent temple to follow, uh, it is divided into two compartments. It is separated by a curtain or a veil. The outer compartment uh, is called the holy place. Uh, It is the main chamber in which the, the priests perform their routine duties, the daily duties that the priests would have. But the inner sanctuary, the innermost part, would be called the most holy place, uh, the holy of holy, where the Ark of the Covenant would would reside. Uh, And that is the place that the high priest could only go in once a year, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, And and he could only do that once a year. And so you see this uh, as a foreshadowing of Christ, Christ delivering the world of sin. Uh, And what I'd like to do is I want to spend a little time with you. I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. And the reason I'm doing this is I want you to get a sense of what God demanded had to be done on the Day of Atonement. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to pick and choose uh, various moments. Uh, various parts. Turn first to verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the turban. All right? Then then it goes on in verse uh, 6. He is to offer the bull for his own sin, uh, offering to make atonement for himself and his household. In other words, God is showing them what you have to do to atone for sin. Sin. All right? I demand righteousness. This is what you have to atone. All right? So Aaron, the high priest, has to atone for himself. Then, continuing in verse 7, he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord uh, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Can you imagine? There's two. One is going to be sacrificed, and one is going to be sent out into the wilderness. Uh, and so you understand this. Uh, uh, they're making atonement by sending the one goat out into the wilderness. Verse 11, 
Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. All right? And you see, he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground incense and take them behind the curtain. Here it is. You see, every single step of the way is ordered in order to make atonement. This is serious. Look at verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for his own sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it uh, do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover. All right? Atonement cover on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Can you imagine? This is where it is. We're not done. Then verse 18. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it all on the horns of the altar. All right. Continuing verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. All right? Uh, it's, this is amazing. When you read this over and over again, what it takes to be atoned. And all of this would be encompassed on the cross by Jesus Christ. All right? You understand? You can't possibly atone for your sins. Because here it is. They would do this one day a year. And they'd have to repeat it year after year after year. Because there's no amount of animal sacrifice that will remove your sins forever. Only through Jesus Christ once and for all. Uh, and so you understand this. Uh, and all of this is a prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus would do once and for all. You see, and they just didn't get it. They didn't get it. Their minds were closed. Uh, and so here we see it right there. When you read all of Leviticus 16 when you get home, your head will explode. Really. Really. I mean, it's, it's just uh, I've done entire classes just on Leviticus 16. Now, there are messianic uh, promises also and prophecies in, in Exodus. Uh, there's another uh, intriguing messianic prophecy, this one related to God's instructions to Moses to consecrate to him all the firstborn of both man and beast. That's found in Exodus 13. Take a look at that. Exodus 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. There it is. Consecrate the firstborn uh, to me, uh, male. Now, in the New Testament, all right, as you see the analog to this, Luke reports that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And when the time came for his purification, according to the law of Moses, which was seven days or so after his birth, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, uh, to commend him to God. Uh, and so I want you to look also at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. All right? Again, understanding that the analog of what this took place to what God now does in the new covenant. Romans 8, verse 29. 
For those God who, who for those God foreknow knew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers, uh, and this is important to understand. Now, going back to understanding what's taking place in the Old Testament, God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel, how about this, Israel is his firstborn son, and he must let my son go that he can serve me. Uh, And if you refuse, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 4 again, as you drill down and see the the impact of being the firstborn son and and his warning. Uh, Look at verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, and this is God instructing Moses, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. There it is. There it is. And so you see it. Uh, So Jesus is the firstborn son of the new covenant. Israel was the firstborn son of the old covenant there, as God determined it. Uh, And Pharaoh was punished severely because he did not respect the will of God in that that way. Uh, This passage points to me uh, the fact that Israel is special, Israel is privileged, uh, and Israel has a preeminence. There it is, folks. You can say whatever you want. I warn you not to be anti-Semitic. I warn you because you're outside of the will of God. When the New Testament writers, you see, identify Jesus as God's firstborn and only son, they are endorsing, you see, the idea uh, that the firstborn son introduced in the Old Testament now reaches its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He's reaching its fulfillment. That's who Jesus is. And so the firstborn son uh, typified Christ and was a direct antecedent of Jesus the Lord, God's only firstborn son. They're tied together. Israel was there told, this is my firstborn son, and now 1,400 years later, Jesus would appear as God's only son, firstborn son. And so Exodus, you see, gives us a beautiful picture of Christ's redemptive activities which are to come down the road. Come down the road. Uh, And so Uh, It's important for you to recognize that. Look, as we look through the Old Testament, you see the book of Leviticus. I just gave you Leviticus chapter 16. uh, And what we find there, it is about, Leviticus is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You'll see it even as you read it. Uh, And it finds its ultimate meaning in him. Uh, To ignore this section of the word of God really is to diminish our understanding of the long-anticipated arrival of Christ Leviticus is important to understand it. Leviticus chronologically and logically follows Genesis and Exodus. Uh, Genesis tells us of man's fall and God's promise to redeem him, while Exodus begins man's actual plan of redemption, as you see God redeeming man. Leviticus features God's instructions uh, to Israel as to how man can develop a relationship with God. God lays it out. Uh, and it's why we need to have a developing relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, this week uh, I, I came 
uh, to meet a personal trainer. I decided that I needed to get in shape, uh, and so look out. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so I've hired a personal trainer, uh, and so I go to meet her for the first time. Uh, and it was interesting because when I went to meet her, uh, it's a woman in her 50s, and she said, oh, Mr. Grip, I know a lot about you. I said, really? Oh, yes. She said, I, I heard that you're a fantastic piano player. I said, really? I said, oh, I'm okay. Uh, no, that's not what I heard. She said, I heard it from this other fellow who knew me, a good friend of mine. I said, well, did he tell you? He and I were both lawyers for many years in the same field. I said, did he tell you that I'm now a pastor of the church? No, he didn't tell me that. Huh. That's a shock. He didn't tell you that. He didn't tell you that I started a church. I have about 300 people every Sunday at the intersection of Golden Gate and Santa Barbara. I, he didn't tell me that. He said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. She goes, this is a God-ordained event. I said, do you go to church? No, I haven't been in church in years. I haven't been in church in years. Well, I was Roman Catholic, but my mother became a born-again Christian, and then I got turned off on the whole thing. I was just turned off about religion. I said, you know what? It's not about religion. You're 50 years old. Draw a line in the sand. It's time to have a relationship with God. You understand? This is about a relationship with God. Uh, and so this is why we need Jesus. And when I got done telling her that, she said, I'm going to come to your church. I'm going to come because I, I want to hear you. I want to see you. Uh, because you're right, I do. It's time for me to develop a relationship. My husband's not going to believe this when I go home. <laughs> well, you know what? It's not about your spouse or making your spouse happy. It's about you. you got to walk with God. All right? got to walk with God. And when you walk with God, you pull other people along with you. And so that's what Leviticus did. Leviticus showed man how to develop a relationship. And so Leviticus involves the liberation from sin. How we are liberated from sin. Uh, because it interferes with God's primary purpose with humanity. God wants a relationship. I know this is hard to believe. That the God of the universe wants to have a personal relationship with each and every one of you. It boggles my mind. You understand? But this is his will. This is what he wants. This is what it's all about. And so he wants to commune with you and be with you in every way. Uh, and, and one of the things that we see in Leviticus is the no-nonsense charge to Israel. Leviticus 11, verse 44. Be holy, for I am holy. God is telling Israel that he is the chosen nation selected to effectively disseminate the word of God, disseminate the gospel to all people. Uh, and it must be uh, spiritually. They must be spiritually and morally pure. That's what God demands. Be holy. All right? Be holy as I am holy. This is what God wants. Look, I want to say this to you. All right? God's will for your life is not that you be happy. Ooh, John, don't say that. But the Bible's clear. It's not about happiness, you understand? Because if it was about happiness, you'd be on your boat on Sunday. Or you'd be on a golf course on Sunday. Or you'd be vacationing around the world, you understand? But it's about holiness. Because God has determined, and it's clear, that when you are holy, you will ultimately be happy. 
And I can tell you that I'm a first-class example of that in my life. All right? I'm at the point in my life where God has blessed me uh, through prosperity. I could go any place I wanted in the world. I could travel anywhere I wanted in the world. And instead, God has constrained me that at the age of coming to 75 shortly, I, I will be leading a church and that every Sunday I will be in that church. Why? Because I have never been happier in my life. I have never been happier in my life. With all the accolades and awards that God gave me through the practice of law, I have never been happier than I am right now as he has called me to lead the people of God. You understand? And the same is for you. I want to emphasize this for you. The same is for you. Be holy. Walk with God. Understand this is his commandment. Be with him. And as you are holy, as you are walking with him, he's going to fill your life with happiness. And I'm saying this for a fact. It doesn't mean that every day you're going to be walking on roses. You understand? When we, when we give our life to Jesus, it's not like there's a rose path. That's it. I'm walking to heaven. Nothing's going to come down my way. No. How'd it work out for the first 12 guys? You understand? How'd it work out for those first 12 guys? But those 12 guys are all in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. You understand? This is what God has constrained us to be. This is why he wants a relationship with us. This is the message he wants you to give to a lost world. People need to hear it. That's why my personal trainer said this was a God-ordained event. I didn't say it. A woman said it who hadn't been in church in years. You think that was the Holy Spirit? I quake. I quake before the throne of God. I'm humbled before God that he would call me and allow me to do this. I can't believe if you asked me 25 years ago, you're going to be preaching? You're going to be leading a church? What, are you kidding me? Oh, I saw my grandfather and my father. I don't have that. That's not for me. But you see, this is what God does. He grabs you. You understand? He grabs you, and he constrains you, and he moves you, and the events of your life come together in a way that you don't even understand. You understand? Even that you don't understand, and suddenly it's clear. It's clear this is the call of, of, of God on your life, and each and every one of you have it. That's why we're studying Jesus in the Old Testament. God has made it clear. He has made it clear that Jesus was meant to be who he was from the very creation of the world. That's the message you need to give to a world lost in sin. In every way, God has given you a benefit, the likes of which you will never get anyplace else. This is how your life will be blessed. This is how you will bless your family and your friends and your community. You will exude this from your life because when you walk into a room, they're going to say, whoa, whoa, there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that woman. And when they understand, it's Jesus Jesus, Jesus in every way. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words that you've given us. I thank you for this message. Father, I thank you for the commitment of these men in every way, Lord. I ask you to bless them and protect them and give them the ability to speak this message to others who desperately need it. Thank you, Father, for Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for leading us to understand that from the beginning of time, Christ was to be our Savior. Lord, I ask you to protect our men and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.